following is a teaching from Irving Bible Church. For more information on how you can join us on a Sunday or take your next step, visit irvingbible.org. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one could perform. No one can see the kingdom of heaven unless they are born again. How can someone be born again when they're old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of the water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sounds, but you cannot tell where it comes from. Or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things? Very truly I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not believe. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the son of man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the son of man may be lifted up. That whoever believes him shall not perish. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That whoever believes him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. But to save the world through him. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. If you have your Bible, grab it, and we're going to go to John chapter 3, the story that you just heard read is where we're going to begin this morning. But as we get started, I also want to let you know about something that's happening across town right now. Um, We talk at Irving Bible Church about being a multi-ethnic movement of missionary disciples formed in the way of Jesus for the sake of the world. And part of our use of that word movement is just to say we want to be about more than just ourselves. That the the movement of Jesus is about disciples who make disciples and leaders who form leaders and churches who plant churches. And you may know that a number of years ago now, uh, we sent out Trey Grant to plant the Well Church in Keller. Well, right now at the Well Church in Keller, they are gathering to commission another one that we are sending out, Moses Uver. Moses was on our staff and has now spent the last year at the Well Church in Keller, and he is being officially ordained and commissioned at the Well this morning to go and plant Vine of Life Church 
in Garland. And we are so excited to be a part of this movement. Churches that plant churches that plant churches. And you have a part in this movement. That, that your faithful giving to IBC is helping fund the planting of uh, churches. We are continuing to help support, encourage um, the Well Church in Keller. We're continuing to help and, and support, encourage uh, funding with uh, Vine of Life and Garland. So thank you for your faithful giving to IBC because you are part of this movement. And we want to pray this morning along with the Well Church of Keller, along with the Vine of Life and Garland. We want to pray joining with them as, uh, as God births something new in the city of Garland to reach people with the good news of Jesus. Will you join me in prayer? Father, together we, the people of Irving Bible Church, come before you and uh, ask your blessing on our friends, our friends at the Well Church and, and now our friends at Vine of Life. God, you are birthing something new in that city. And we are excited that we get to cheer them on. We're excited that we get to be a part of it. We're excited to get to see the fruit that you will bear, fruit for your glory, fruit that will last. As men and women, boys and girls come to know Christ, come to follow as his disciples through the vine of life. So Lord, we pray your blessing today on on Moses and Mallory and on their family. And for all those that are part of the core group that are launching vine of life, God, we pray that you would protect them that you would build them up, that you would strengthen them and encourage them to persevere through all the challenges that come with planting a new church. And God, we look forward with great anticipation to what you will do in the city of Garland through the vine of life. I thank you for the people of IBC, for their faithful giving to this church that helps make this kind of movement in our city possible. And we thank you most of all for your love and your grace that you've lavished upon us in Jesus. And now, as we turn to your word, God, would you speak? Would you speak to all of us? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we are this week uh, in our sermon series called The Story of Life. That if you've been with us from the beginning of the year, you know that we spent the months of January and February talking about the story of God, an eight-week sermon series that we covered the big story of the Bible. If, if you're new to IBC since then, you may want to go back and listen to those. It's an orientation to the whole story of the Bible. Then we spent six weeks during Lent talking about the story of us, using Israel's story to see ourselves, to, to use Israel's story as a kind of mirror in which we saw the patterns in our own lives that, that led to um, this sort of downward spiral that you see in the story of Israel. And that sets us up then to talk about the story of life, the, 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 the climax of the biblical story in the incarnation, the crucifixion, and the resurrection of Jesus that we celebrated last week uh, on Easter Sunday. But, but Easter is more than just a Sunday. It actually launches this great 50-day season. And so for the course of these next six weeks, we're going to be talking about the story of life, that Jesus came not only to give us the gift of eternal life that we receive through trusting in him, but he came to show us what the fully human life looks like. Jesus is fully God and fully human, and, and as such, he gives us the pattern of the kind of life that he says that he came to bring. And so each week, over the course of these next six, six weeks, we'll be looking at Uh, stories from the life of Jesus to see the kind of life that God wants to form in us. We who have trusted in Christ for our salvation, trusted in him for the gift of eternal life, now seek to pattern our lives after the life of Jesus. And this morning, 
we're talking about the idea of Jesus, the boundary breaker. That when we look at the life of Jesus, what we see is consistently, pervasively, throughout his life and ministry, Jesus is constantly crossing and even subverting the culturally and religiously imposed boundaries of his day. Jesus refused to live inside the box that his cultural environment created for him. That he's constantly moving toward people, showing them the dignity that is theirs as image bearers of God, moving toward people with compassion in the face of their brokenness. And he calls all of us who follow him to do the same. And it's actually in following Jesus that we find the life that is truly life. We can see this idea of Jesus, the boundary breaker, all over the pages of the Gospels. And yet this morning, I want to focus in with you on four scenes from the life of Jesus told in the Gospel of John. John puts these stories back to back, four in a row, with four different people that Jesus encounters. And each of these scenes, familiar stories. In fact, if you're reading along with us through the New Testament this year as a church, you read these stories week before last. They're familiar stories. And yet, while each of them has their own message... I think there's a message in John putting them together. We sometimes think of the gospel writers as as though they're sort of newspaper reporters that are just telling us this happened, then this happened, then this happened. And yet the gospel writers are actually brilliant storytellers because they take the stories that they observe from the life of Jesus and they put them together for very theological and pastoral purposes. They select their stories and their arrangement to make a point. And I think there's a point for us in seeing these scenes and how they fit together. So let's dive in. Scene one, Nicodemus, the story we heard read for us just a moment ago. And we come to Nicodemus' story. There's five things that we need to recognize about Nicodemus from the cultural background in order to really get the force of the story. Five things we need to know. First, Nicodemus is a man. That's sort of obvious when you read the story. Nicodemus is a man, and yet it's important to recognize culturally That Nicodemus is a man in a patriarchal society, a society that that held men in positions of of power and and influence. And so Nicodemus is a man. But not only that, Nicodemus is an old man that by his own admission, he says in the story, how can an old man go back and be born anew? He's an old man. And he's an old man in a culture that held older men in high esteem. So there's some sense in which being an older man meant he was all the more held up by his society. He's a man. He's an older man. Third, he's a Pharisee. And sometimes if we're familiar with reading the Gospels, we sort of get the, the idea the Pharisees are sort of the, the bad guys in the story, right? They're the ones that, that uh, are constantly running into trouble with Jesus. And so we can easily kind of have a negative association with the term Pharisee. But in that first century world, the Pharisees are the people that they really took the word of God seriously. They really took the, the faith Seriously, they, they sought to live holy lives. And so they were, again, looked up to, held in high esteem by the other Jewish people within their society. Nicodemus is a man. He's an older man. He's a Pharisee. But not just that. He's a member of the Jewish ruling council called the Sanhedrin. A group of 71 Jewish men who were like the high court of the land. And so they were the people that everyone else looked up to for their religious leadership. Nicodemus is a man. He's an older man. He's a Pharisee. He's a member of the Jewish ruling council. And then Jesus calls him the teacher of Israel. The teacher of Israel. In the version we heard read just a moment ago, it says you are Israel's teacher. But there in the original Greek, the the article is there. You're the teacher of Israel. 
Nicodemus is one who sits at the top of the heap, culturally and religiously speaking, in Jesus' day. That's part of why he actually comes to Jesus at night. right? And I promised myself I wouldn't make the Nick at night joke, so we're just going <laughs> to move right past that and ignore that it's even just sitting there. right? Um, right? Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night because given his status, he's not sure he's ready to be seen with Jesus just yet. And he comes to Jesus basically to say, who are you? What, what, what's going on with you? What, what's, what's happening right now? And Jesus, as he's prone to do, has this wonderful non sequitur. Like he, he just throws something out there that seems like, how did, how did we get here? But, but Jesus takes him right in immediately to the deep end. Verse three, look at this. Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. No one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. Imagine being Nicodemus and hearing those words from Jesus. Nicodemus who sits at the top of the heap culturally and religiously speaking. Nicodemus who's lived his whole life striving for perfection. He's lived his whole life striving to to, to follow God's law, striving after holiness. He's gotten to this status because of his striving. And now Jesus says to him, all your striving gets you nowhere in terms of entry into the kingdom of God. Your striving is worth nothing in getting you in to God's reign. How must Nicodemus have I've heard that. Well, we get some sense of his response in in the following verse. He says, how can someone be be born when they're old? Nicodemus asks. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. And Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and the spirit. Now, for a long time, I read those words from Nicodemus as though he's just completely missed the point, which happens quite often when people are talking to Jesus, and, uh, and as though he's thinking physical new birth. And right, he asked this question about entering back into the mother's womb to be born, and, and yet I think that he's getting it a little more than that. I think even his question about being born again really is this sense That he's saying, Jesus, are are you telling me that after all of this, I've got to start anew? Are you you telling me that after all of this, I've got to go back to the very beginning? After all this, there's something that fundamentally missing that I need a new birth, a new life. After all this. And Jesus says, yes, that's exactly what I'm telling you. He says, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and the spirit. Jesus is talking about a spiritual new birth. In fact, that little phrase that talks about uh, being born again, John loves to use these words and phrases that kind of have a double meaning. And and there's a double meaning in those words that, that it can be translated born again, or it can be translated born from above. And I think John intends for us to hear both of those things. You have to be born from above by The spirit, a spiritual rebirth is the only way that you get entry in to the kingdom of God. Now, think about this. Nicodemus sits at the top of the heap. Everyone looks to him as Israel's teacher 
as the godly Nicodemus, all of his striving got him to that spot. If anyone doesn't need the grace of God, surely it's Nicodemus. And yet he does. Because what Jesus says is none of that striving is going to get you into the kingdom of God. That it only comes to you as a gift by grace. And, and he goes on to, to say this in these famous words in John three sixteen and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. And there's sometimes I wish people knew verse 17 as well as they know verse 16. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And how is that salvation possible? How is that new birth possible? How is that entry into the kingdom of God possible? It's possible for whoever believes. 98 times in the gospel of John, we get this little word, believe, trust. It's, it's much more than just believing like I believe in Abraham Lincoln, right? Like I believe that he existed. It's much more than sort of mental assent. It is indeed trusting in and relying on that the only way that anybody gets into the kingdom of God, receives new life from him, has new spiritual birth is through believing, trusting in what Jesus has come to do. And that is available for whoever believes. That's scene one. Now scene two. Scene two uh, picks up then at the beginning of chapter four. John puts these two scenes back to back. He talks about Nicodemus coming to Jesus at night. And then we pick up the story at the woman at the well. And let's begin reading verse five. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans, John tells us. And Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now, John tells us that this story happens at noon. How many times do the gospel writers tell us the the time that the events took place? The answer is not very often. And usually when they do, it's because there's something that you need to get in the story by knowing what time it happened. We're told Nicodemus came to Jesus at night because that's a big part of the story. He didn't want to be seen with Jesus. I believe this woman comes to the well at noon because she doesn't want to be seen by anybody. Of course, we find out as this story plays out, she's a woman whose life is marked by pain and shame. In fact, a little later in the story, Jesus will say to her, go call your husband. And she shrinks in front of him and says, I have no husband. And he says, you're right to say that you have no husband. You've had five husbands and the man you're with now is not your husband. Now, for a long time, I think this story has been read and told as though this is a woman who is a promiscuous woman, 
right? That, that she, she's a woman who just gets around and she gets from one guy to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next. Thank you very much. Now she's just shacking up with a guy. But can I tell you, I think that that interpretation is, is culturally impossible. Like for her in that situation, culturally, she likely would not have the power to initiate a divorce. This is probably a woman who either has multiple times suffered uh, being widowed or has had one man after another who has discarded her. And now the man that she's with, who she's now looked to again for some sense of protection and provision, doesn't even have the decency to marry her. And Jesus presses into this place of pain and shame in her story. But it's important to note, he doesn't press into her shame in order to hurt her. Likely it hurt. But he doesn't press into her shame to hurt her. He presses in to heal her. And sometimes the hurt is part of the healing. I wonder how many of us in the room know that sometimes there is hurt that happens on the way to healing. When you're a kid and you scrape your knee and you run to mom to, to, to make it better, you want her to, to, to heal it, but just don't touch it, right? Heal it, but don't touch it because touching it is going to hurt. But now we're old enough to know that she can't heal it if she doesn't touch it. The same is true in our lives. Sometimes God will touch those places of hurt and pain, but he doesn't do that to hurt us. He does it to heal us. And I wonder if some of us may be running away from healing in our lives because we're running away from the hurt that we know it might inevitably involve. Heal it, but don't touch it. Jesus presses into this place of, uh, of shame, but he does so in order to, to heal her. And, uh, and so th- this, as the story goes, what we find here is she's completely taken aback. She's completely shocked that he would even talk to her. And she's shocked, again, culturally, you have to understand, first of all, because he's a man and she's a woman. We've talked before in talking about the story about the bruised and bleeding Pharisees who not only wouldn't speak to a woman in public, they wouldn't even look at a woman in public. And so if a woman was going by, they would cover their faces and wind up falling all over themselves, thus earning the name the bruised and bleeding Pharisees because they wouldn't even look at a woman in public. And Jesus crosses that culturally imposed boundary and engages with her in conversation She's taken aback because he's a man and she's a woman, but she's also taken aback because he's a Jew and she's a Samaritan. They have this deep-seated and and historic ethnic antipathy toward one another. Each of those groups do. Um, In our contemporary language, we would call it deep-seated racism between Jewish people and Samaritan people. And this was so common that she's completely taken aback. You would... You would have your Jewish lips touch my Samaritan jar. Jesus is crossing culturally imposed boundaries of his day, showing this woman incredible dignity and moving toward her with compassion. And and what's so remarkable about the story, obviously we're having to leave out a lot of details, but, but look at the very end of the story, verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that, the Messiah called Christ is coming. And when he comes, he'll explain everything to us. 
Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Jesus makes his most clear, unambiguous self-disclosure to this Samaritan woman. And it's important to note that putting these stories back to back, Nicodemus' story and the Samaritan woman, she's as far at the other end of the cultural and religious spectrum of the first century world as she could possibly be from Nicodemus. If Nicodemus' story says, surely if anybody doesn't need the grace of God, surely it's Nicodemus, but he does. Her story is, surely if anyone is beyond the reach of the grace of God, surely it's her, but she's not. Jesus crosses the culturally and religiously imposed boundaries of his day, showing her dignity, treating her with compassion. Story three. Scene three picks up at the end of chapter four here. It's the story of Jesus and the royal official son. Verse 46. Once more, he visited Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son who was close to death. So once again, you've got to understand a little bit of the cultural background here. We're told this man is a royal official. That is, he's likely someone who served in the courts of Herod the Tetrarch, the the regional uh, ruler of the day. And this man serves in his court. That means that this man is a man of great power, a man of great privilege, a man of great affluence. This is a man who bows to no one save Herod himself, but he expects everyone else to bow to him. He's a man of great power. He's a man of great wealth. He's used to getting what he wants. Whatever he asks for, people do. And yet here, he's just a desperate dad. Suddenly all that power, all that affluence mean nothing when his son is laying close to death. There's no weight that he can throw around. There's no money he can throw at the problem to solve it. He's desperate. And I love that it says he comes and he begs Jesus to go with him to heal his son. That this man who's prominent, affluent, privileged, prestige is reduced to a beggar begging for mercy. And look the way this story plays out. Verse 49, the royal official said, sir, come down before my child dies. Go, Jesus replied. Your son will live. Your son will have life. The man took Jesus at his word and departed. And while he was still on the way, his servants met him with the news that the boy was living. The boy had life. And when he inquired us to the time when, it, when his son got better, they said to him, yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said, your son will live. So he and the whole household believed. Right? The, the guy pleads with Jesus. He's begging Jesus. Jesus, please come with me to go heal my son. And Jesus says, go. Your son will have life. Now, the way this story plays out isn't the way that I would have responded. Right? I would have, I would have said, Jesus, that's great. Thank you, Thank you for those kind words. But can we, can we just get going now? Like, please come with me. Just, just come with me. Right? 16 and a half miles between Cana and Capernaum. 
And so this man's like, can, can we just get started? Thank you for your nice words, Jesus, but let's go, right? Come on. And I would, have been, I would have been begging and I would have been pleading and I would have been pulling. Jesus, come with me. But I love the way that the, the story captures it. It says, the man took Jesus at his word and departed. When I was a kid, we used to sing, tis so sweet to trust in Jesus just to take him at his word. The man hears the word of Jesus and he trusts it and he leaves. And as he's making that 16 and a half mile journey back to Capernaum, suddenly he's met with people from his home and they've come to bring him the good news that his son has life. And this guy hears the, the good news And I have to imagine that his eyes just fill up with tears. He's overwhelmed by the good news of his boy. And then he says, he goes, now wait a second. Hold on, time out. What time was it? And they say, well, it was one in the afternoon. And he has this realization that it's at the very moment that Jesus said, your son will have life. And so it says he and his whole household believed. You think? (laughs) That's scene three. Scene four. Quickly, scene four, beginning in chapter five, verse one. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now there was in Jerusalem near the sheep gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. One who was there who had been an invalid for 38 years, years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Now this story, um, uses the term that a term that's kind of fallen out of usage in a lot of ways. The term invalid, a person whose, whose, um, condition leaves them bedridden. It's a, a term that, uh, has fallen out of favor because in some respects you see in the word, it, it can it can imply a sense that this person is somehow invalid. And tragically, that's the way a person in that condition would have been seen in the first century world. In that cultural context, that that, that person would have been seen somehow as less than, as someone who really just was a, a burden. And so he's left lying there alone. And yet Jesus doesn't see anybody as invalid. Jesus sees this man and the dignity that is his because he is made in the image of God. And Jesus goes to him and engages him in a conversation and asks him a really interesting question, doesn't he? Do you want to get well? 38 years, this guy's been lying here on this mat. And Jesus comes to him and says, so you, you want to get well? It's like, seriously, Jesus, you're going to ask him that question? And yet I, I think there's I think there's something important underneath the question. I think part of what Jesus is getting at is, are you prepared for all the waves your life would have to change if I healed you? And I wonder if maybe for some of us, we need to hear that question today. For some of us, we need to hear Jesus saying, do you you want to get well? Are you prepared for all the ways your life would have to change if, if I healed you? And, and the way this man responds 
He says, well, there's nobody here to help me get into the pool. They apparently believed that when the pool was stirred, the first person in would receive a healing. And so he says, I'm, I'm stuck here. Nobody's here to help me to get in the pool. There's a sense in which his response is, this is just the way that it is. This is just the way that I am. And again, I wonder how many of us have embraced that lie. How many of us have come to a place in our lives where we just resigned ourselves to say, well, this is just the way that it is. This is just the way that I am. And Jesus says to him, get up, pick up your mat and go. And guess what happens? He got up, he picked up his mat and he went. Now, four scenes that John has put together back to back. Four scenes of of four remarkably different people. But I think collectively, these four scenes tell us something really important about Jesus, the boundary breaker. Scene one, Nicodemus. If there's anybody who, who doesn't need the grace of God, surely it's Nicodemus, but he does. Because all that striving doesn't get you anywhere in the kingdom of God. Your entry into the kingdom of God, your receiving of eternal life comes only to whoever believes, who trusts in him. Surely if there's anybody who doesn't need the grace of God, surely it's Nicodemus, but he does and we all do. Surely if there's anyone beyond the reach of God seen too, it's the woman at the well. And yet she's not because none of us are. None of us are beyond the reach of the grace of God. All of us are in need. None of us are beyond the reach. Scene three, this man of great power, influence, and affluence is reduced to a beggar begging for mercy. And the great reformer Martin Luther picked up his pen as he lay dying and wrote what would become the last sentence of his prodigious writing life. We are all beggars. That is true. Scene four, a man that in his cultural day would have been seen as invalid. Jesus comes to him and he shows him the dignity that is his as an image bearer of God. He heals him. His life has changed forever. Jesus was a boundary breaker that he constantly, pervasively, crosses over and subverts the culturally and religiously imposed boundaries of his day. Jesus sees everyone that he encounters as someone who's made in the image of God and has inherent dignity and deserves to be treated as such. That it's not that their differences didn't matter. It's not that the, the differences disappeared. It's that the differences, he refused to let the differences keep him away. He treated everyone with dignity as image bearer of God. He saw everyone that he met as a sin sick person living in a sin scarred world. And he moved toward them with compassion. Jesus was a boundary breaker. And he calls all who would follow him to be the same. To refuse to live within the boxes that our cultural environment have created for us. And it's in following Jesus, the boundary breaker, that we come to know the life that is truly life. But we need to recognize that there's more to this story than merely pointing to Jesus' example and saying, live up to that. But it's also the great reminder that here we find the gospel that we don't live up to, but lean into. 
Because we find that there, our motivation for following Jesus to become boundary breakers comes from the reality that Jesus has come to us to break the boundary between heaven and earth. That Jesus has come to us to break the boundary between us and God. That, that Jesus has come when we were alienated from God and there was nothing we could do to save ourselves. Through all of our striving, it amounted to nothing. That Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for many. That Jesus came so that whoever believes in him might have life. Thank you for listening to this teaching from Irving Bible Church. For more information on how to join us on a Sunday or take your next step, visit irvingbible.org.